Hello. Hello there, everyone. Recording. Yay. Um, welcome to the first Copyright Waffle podcast for quite some time. Yes, first one for about um, a year now. Last one that we recorded um, was actually an in-person Copyright Waffle we did in January 2020, wasn't it, in London? Yeah, yeah, but as everyone will know, since the beginning of 2020, things went a bit strange. Um, I mean, we've been doing an awful lot of stuff. We've been running a whole load of webinars about copyright and the impact on um, online uh, learning that, that the pandemic has brought. But this is the yeah. first of the of the Waffle podcasts that we've um, got round to doing. And uh, I think it's a really good one. Yeah, 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 it is. It's and really it, interesting. And I think um, it, it, it's quite topical as well, because we're talking to somebody, um, your colleague at the University of Kent, Dr. Richard Misek, who is a documentary filmmaker, and he's also a lecturer in film studies. And he's talking about his experiences of copyright and how he got interested in it, isn't he? Yeah, it's 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 a really good one. Um, so we we do we did record it on a video chat. So we do have the video. We may keep that in our back pocket, and and it may feature at some point. At the moment, we're doing it as an audio uh, podcast, audio only. We should say the, the audio quality there. Um, since that, we've both upgraded our microphone. So what you're hearing now is the new high quality audio copyright waffle experience. Um, so just bear with us with that. There's, there's a few um, little dropouts there, as you might expect. Everyone's used to that these days, aren't they? Um, yes. yeah. Richard sounds yeah. great, of course. He's, he's got a proper pro setup. High quality, high quality but then, uh, microphone. Then he, but then he is a professional filmmaker, so you would expect him to know what he's doing. Um, yes. So the other thing uh, we thought we'd mention uh, is uh, Richard makes reference to Aaron Schwartz. And for those that aren't aware of, of his story, um, uh, we would uh, recommend checking out The Internet's Own Boy, which is a documentary um, about his his life tragically cut short. But it's an important thing for anyone interested in copyright to be aware of some mm. of those implications of those people who really put themselves on the line for their for their principles absolutely yeah yeah on that note i think we should get on with the uh, the interview shouldn't we yeah we should go over to the main waffle where where that was happening and cut the waffle here okay see you on the other side yeah It's for those of you who are watching a video. This is a video waffle, isn't it? So you will be able to see We're our guest. So, hey Richard, do you want to say hello? Hello. Hello. Uh, so our guest today is Dr. Richard Misek, um, who is a colleague of mine at the University of Kent. So we're going to get into talking to Richard in a, in a moment. Um, but yeah, Jane, this is it's been a while since we've done a, a copyright waffle interview, isn't it? It, it, yes, it has. I think it was the start of the year, wasn't it? We did one um, in person and when the yeah. world was uh, able to meet in rooms and yes, get together. We, we did we did our last waffle um, in central London. I think it's January time. Yeah. But, so yeah, here, here we are back again. Uh, and I think we should probably uh, not talk too much about all the things that have happened in the intervening time since we last did one. And we should... We should get into talking to our guest. Yes. 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 So tell us, 
Tell us a bit about our guest, Chris. Well, I'm, I'm, yes, yeah, so I'm delighted to Dr. Richard Misek, who is a senior lecturer in film at the uh, School of Arts at the University of Kent. Um, and you, uh, it's fair to say, Richard, you have an interest in copyright, hence having agreed to being um, waffled at by us. That is correct. Excellent. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, I, I guess one of the first things um, that I'm really interested in is obviously we you can tell us a little bit about your sort of background because I think what I'm interested in is someone who works in in you know in film and is a a film director and all the sort of many things that you do Richard what what was it that kind of um, brought you into the world of copyright what can you sort of pinpoint was there a time when it sort of you know revealed itself to you yeah absolutely for most of my life I was blissfully ignorant of copyright, wasn't interested in it, didn't care about it until one fine day it found me. Um, okay. And it it happened, I mean, you don't think about it until something that you do impacts upon it and then you in turn are impacted by it. And the, the, the thing that made me find it or made it find me was a film that I made, my first and still only feature film called Romare in Paris in uh, about seven years ago. And mm -hmm. it was a film made entirely out of footage taken, uh, found footage. And the footage was entirely right. from films made by the French filmmaker Eric Romare. And it was uh, about an hour and 10 minutes long. And out of that, probably about 55 minutes of material was directly lifted from his films. And I was obviously, when I was making it, I was very sort of concerned with all this material I hadn't made. And so I started, I wasn't even yet thinking about copyright. I was just conscious that this had to be addressed somehow. And so I, I initially came, I initially tried to get permission to, to use the material and spent a, an incredibly long time trying to trace who the rights holders of the material were. And most of the material was rights held by a, a production company, Romare's production company in Paris called Les Films de Los Angeles. Um, about 80% was theirs. So I spent ages drafting a meticulously worded letter, really polite, getting somebody to translate it into perfect French. And of course, yeah. the whole endeavor was completely pointless. I sent it to them. I never heard from them again. And that led me to sort of, you know, panic a little bit. It's like, well, what, what, what's going to happen to me now? I can't get, I've spent three years making this film and I can't get permission to send it out. And I panicked. And I think I waited for the sky to fall in um, and it never did. And so I just sent it to film festivals and they started accepting it. No problems. And more and more film festivals showed it. And practically nobody asked anything about the provenance of the footage. They just right. said, fine, we'll show it. And this was, you know, some obscure film festivals, but also mainstream film festivals, and also quite major institutions like, you know, you know, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, like big yeah. places who you'd think would care, didn't care in the slightest. Um, yeah. The only film festival that I I know of that is really strict on copyright actually is, is Sundance Film Festival mm. um, because it's so close to the industry um, and right. they are absolutely un, unforgiving about the inclusion of 
non-licensed material. Though I have to say, I, I did have another work in Sundance just this year, and I managed to slip in a whole load of non-licensed material into it. So even the strict ones aren't actually in practice so strict. Um, and so when, when I was showing this film, um, people did ask questions about the footage and about the rights. And so yeah. that was when I started doing a little bit of research about copyright and checking mm. out the legals. Um, so I could basically cover my back so nobody mm. would give me too much of a hard time over it. Yeah. That was when I came across fair use and fair dealing um, right. and found out that what I'd been doing had been legal all along and that I needn't have worried right from the first point because it was all really fine. Um, and the sky wasn't going to fall in. <laughs> no, exactly. And so off the back of that, and I think in particular, off the back of my anxiety, I felt quite compelled to, to, to know about copyright myself and to teach other people about copyright yeah. and about what, the, what they have the right to do. Because I, I felt that that anxiety was disproportionate and unnecessary and I don't want other people to go through that same process yeah. right yeah okay yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense so did you ever hear back from Roma or his uh, his people no I didn't so I did hear actually that his producer indirectly I heard that his producer had seen the film and quite liked it but oh. I only heard about this through like somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody but no. the point was they couldn't have replied to me because I was just this little nobody director who had no money to offer, um, who was asking for the rights to, to show this film just in festivals. And there's just, you know, there's, they couldn't have said yes, even if they wanted to. Um, you know, they just, it would have been impossible. That's, that's the kind of agreement that they never make with filmmakers. Um, no. And no, cool. so I was asking the impossible, actually. Yeah. It's not their fault. It's just that's not how copyright works. That's not how the granting of permission works. Mm. You don't just ask someone in a letter, say, by the way, can I use 45 minutes of your footage? Um, <laughs> you know, just... No, because it, it's, it's not like a business transaction, which is normally what a film production company would be thinking about when it comes to, to thinking about copyright issues. Exactly. Either it's a business transaction or they don't want to hear about it. Yeah. And I think they probably read the letter and thought, you know, you shouldn't have even written to us. You know, we, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> so what was it that first drew you to um, doing montage film work and, and, and working with, with other people's uh, creative works to come up with something new? Yeah. Well, the background to that was, I guess, a longer term background in my own history. Uh, before I became an academic, I was a video editor and I worked doing video editing and animation for uh, design agencies for about five or six years. And my life up until when I started lecturing was always a kind of either or. So it was either I was working practically professionally or I was taking a year out to do my MA or further study. And the two really didn't connect. It was quite a schizophrenic or quite a split life. Um, and then when I start off, and my PhD also, um, involved that. So I did a, you know, I spent four years researching the history of colour in film. And then two days a week, I worked in a, for a tourism agency in Australia and made videos for them. And the two sort of existed quite separately. And when I started lecturing, I started hearing about this, this thing called practice as research, where people who actually make stuff can also call it research. And it seemed like a pretty 
good idea. Uh, and so then I spent a number of years trying to figure out how to do so. Um, and the way that I found, you know, everyone has their own solution to how to create, how to turn artistic creation into research. And mine came through using found footage because it, it combined my interest as a film, film academic in analyzing moving images and my hands-on interest in cutting. Um, and this was about 10 years ago when video essays were still not really very well known and a bit anomalous. And I just got in quite early with making video essays. Um, and since then, of course, it's kind of an everyone does it and it's an obvious thing to do. But in 2010, it wasn't obvious at all. You know, it felt like quite an un, unwalked path. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I've been walking it ever since now. Yeah. And, and obviously you've got, you've got a lot of films and a lot of work under your belt kind of looking at that that area. Um, so I, I think what was interesting, uh, as you said, copyright found you because inevitably if you're working with other people's material that comes up and and, and it wasn't actually until um we were we were all at the creative Commons summit in lisbon that actually we we first met up so despite mm. the fact that you and i both work in the same institution it's because you've then become more involved with those discussions about copyright um you know at, in the creative sector um in academia um that you're now kind of following that discussion and that debate about how creativity is is supported or not by by copyright. So um, presumably that's that's an area that that's a continuing interest to you. Yeah, it's taken on. It's become an interest in itself. And there, there came a point at which guarding my back, you know, my back had already been guarded by the time my film was out in festivals. And I just found that actually this is just a very interesting area of um, of interest. And mm. I think it's, you know, from a filmmaking perspective, um, but also just from like a personal interest, like I'm, I'm quite, you know, I think this is a really kind of, it feels like a very political issue to me. And I'm always quite mindful of the next step I'll take in my discussion about or engagement with copyright, because, you know, it's a, it's a weighty issue and there's a lot of money, you know, behind copyright enforcement. Um, but I'm also quite conscious of, of the fact that it feels like something that I do, I, know, I don't know, not to attack, but something that I do want to test. And I do want to keep, you know, keep that oppositional pressure um, against longer and stronger copyright, as Patricia Afterheider calls it, um, and to keep, keep facing it with the reality check, but sometimes it just doesn't work. Yeah. I think what was really yeah. interesting, just to say that, because Richard, you invited me to to talk on your um, to to some of your students mm. about um, copyright, and that's very closely linked to the to the work that Jane and I are always advocating on copyright literacy and trying to ensure that people have the understanding of copyright as it relates to digital literacy, awareness, and creativity. Um, so interesting to see the, the how you're presenting that and the kind of discussions that you have with students who are doing media studies mm. and um, similar subjects. Yeah, and their own background to it is kind of like my own background to it, actually. It's like the vast majority of them don't know anything about it or until we talked about it, didn't know anything about it, didn't care about it, had never come across it because it hadn't found them. 
and they hadn't done anything hype. You know, they their entire media life is, has so far been spent under the radar, you know, posting a few bits on YouTube or Vimeo, you know, maybe torrenting some films and nothing's ever been high profile enough for, for them actually to have to think about it or to treat it as something that impacts on their lives. Um, and as soon as, you know, you, you came in, Chris, and, you know, we started talking about all the ways in which copyright does impact on them. I think it was a real eye opener. And I played a sort of a light version of a copyright card game with them, where we just the amount of copyright that, you know, that we're all surrounded by in our daily lives is just overwhelming. And it, yeah, it, they, they really didn't realize that. Um, and so it was, yeah, copyright card game. Really good. Play it. <laughs> it's a fun. Thank you. <laughs> That's That's a good you can as well, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> These yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you you just mentioned um a, a bit earlier. You you mentioned Patricia Alsterhide and her, the work that she's done on uh, a, a fair sort of practice. Mm. I, I just wondered, are there are there people that have inspired you when you sort of went into the copyright space? You started to hold that uh, thought. We've got a jingle. There's a jingle. Then you can talk to us about your copyright heroes. Help us when we're starting out and in our time of need. Their wisdom, grace and eloquence inspires us to succeed. And send us on our way They are copyright heroes There we go, it's, it's quite a long jingle isn't it? Was that piece, was that piece cr created by you Chris by any chance? Yeah. I, I couldn't say It's an anonymous jingle supplier that we have somewhere I, I, I do the brief for the jingles and it, part of it was that it had to have horses neighing and sort of sound a little bit like um a theme tune to a sort of 1970s uh series that will remain nameless anyway yeah um <laughs> copyright heroes <laughs> where was i um we were yeah we we were talking about who you might admire or whose work might have influenced you and you mentioned Patricia Alsterheider um and 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 I wondered you know are, are there any people that you would like to sort of single out um if you can compose yourself Richard <laughs> yeah yeah, sorry, yeah I mean before that jingle completely killed the conversation yes I was about to say um <laughs> Uh, I mean, certainly Patricia Alfterheider is, uh, and Wojtek, uh, what's, what's the, Peter Yassi, um, yeah. I think yeah. specifically within my field and within uh, fair use, I think they're very important simply because um, of the work that they did in the mid-2000s around encouraging uh, documentary makers to assert their rights to fair use. Mm -hmm. And by and through the best practice, the mm. documentary filmmaking best practice statement, which worked um, incredibly well, um, and that you know what they did made really made possible what I do, um, and films like you know uh, Kirby Dick's this film is not yet rated, and um, Rodney Asher's Room Two Three Seven is it? 
the the you know the the shining kind of one with clips from the shining and these films by by being declared fair use i think opened up um documentary found footage filmmaking to the mainstream in a way that it hadn't been previously until then it was just underground filmmaking you know odd stuff by bruce connor that found its way into art galleries or midnight movies um midnight movie compilations or film festivals um and so i think they what they did just had a really massive impact um and has to be acknowledged um not in terms of personal heroes um i would say probably aaron swartz is a big hero of mine um Edward Snowden is also a hero of mine, but not not in specifically copyright related field. Um, mm. But er, people who see the bigger ethical picture in what they're yeah. doing and have the strength of character to put themselves on the line for the sake of access to culture. I find that incredibly inspiring. And mm. I don't know if I could do that, but it just fills me with hope and energy um, mm. and um great admiration um yeah. I, I mean i find i find particular aaron swartz sort of frustrating because he made key strategic mistakes i mm. think um and you know they cost him his life in the end mm. um and i think though though he, he made one mistake um but he you know his the way he i mean the idea of accessing all the jstor Every you know every article on JSTOR and making it public was just yeah. such a beautiful and brilliant one. The way he did it by you know breaking into a room in the basement of, of MIT um, mm. was opening himself up to getting caught. Um, yeah. And I think worst of all, he did it in a way that involved breaking the law. And I think he could have done what he did more subtly so that he wouldn't have got caught. And I think he possibly could have done what he did in a way that actually didn't break the law in which, you know, the only issue would have been whether what he did was fair use or not fair use, rather than whether it was trespassing, breaking and entering, criminal damage yeah. and all the other 13 charges they laid against him. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I found that, yeah, I think that, you know, the, but that's also inspiring in a way, you know, I look at what he did and think, well, is for a way to try to do a little bit of what he did, but to do it in a way that doesn't turn you into some kind of outlaw, but mm-hmm. but that guards your back um, and allows you to do it in a in an upfront way, so you can actually you know uh, speak for it, you know. Yeah. Because he also had to do it anonymous, you know, kind of he had to hide when he did it. And I'm, you know, I'm currently, you know, constantly looking for things that I may be able to do in the future where I can actually do something and not be scared of doing it and then be able to speak to it. Um, So methodologically, too, I think a lot about, you know, Aaron Swartz Mm. um, and try to think through how he did what he did and how others might be able to do things differently. Yeah. And the, the, the film... Um, the Internet's Own Boy that tells the, the story I thought was very good. I think very interesting because you get all of the reflections from those the people around him in the community. And and I think, yeah, that, that sense of powerlessness that they had to help him once he'd gone through that stage yeah. of having, you know, clearly done things that were clearly illegal and then having the full weight of the U.S., judicial system making an example of him and so yeah it, it's it's a tragic story but i i agree it's it's something that a lot yeah a lot of us that are trying to 
tried to change the way in which we perceive copyright you know how far how many of us would would go as far as, as that and and finding that balance is difficult yeah no i, I wouldn't that's for sure mm. <laughs> that, that kind of makes me think it's a sort of you know it's not a question as such richard but just something you know that the idea of actually making a film a sort of popular film that raises copyright issues have you seen paywall the business of scholarship the one that's about open access because i think that there's, you know, film is so powerful and actually, you know, it, it could be such a, a a valuable way to get that message across because much of the way, you know, you know, Chris and I try to communicate about copyright in different ways, games, mm. kind of podcasts and things like that. And, and and film, I think, as a medium is is a really powerful medium, isn't it, that that, that can be used in that way. Funny you should say that. I'm working on a project um, just at the moment um, on that kind of subject. Okay. So, Please tell us about your project. Well, it's, I mean, very briefly, it's a, it's, the, the working title of it is A History of the World According to Getty Images. And I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to, it involves buying licensed footage from Getty and I don't want to to be blacklisted by them before I've even made the film. Um, I want that to happen afterwards. Um, so, but it's it's basically a focusing on an issue which I think is quite particular, but quite pernicious, which is that when something crosses into the public domain, so when copyright lapses on something, it depends what medium it was created in as to whether or not it becomes freely available. So if you have a piece of writing the copyright of which lapses, you know, when Virginia Woolf's copyright lapsed mm -hmm. last year, suddenly it was all there because it's all out in the world. You know, it's already been out in the world for a long time. That's not the same with media, though. It depends who owns the media and where the media has been previously circulated. So if the media is in private hands and it's not freely available, the fact that it can legally cross into the public domain can technically mean nothing. And that happens to be the case with many private and indeed sometimes public archives whose work crosses over into the public domain, but remains hidden behind a firewall in the archive. And so the public domainness of it is, in a sense, irrelevant. If you could get the clip, great, you could do anything with it and share it with anyone, but you can't. And the distinction here is between is equivalent to content ID on YouTube, the fact that it's not the law that judges whether something is, you know, able to be shared or not. It's um, a business practice. Um, you know, it's it's what the company that controls the media chooses. Um, and so, uh, the film focuses on uh, extracting certain uh, pieces of public domain footage from Getty Images and making a film out of them to demonstrate what is in the Getty. Uh, what Getty, how many key pivotal images are under Getty's control, even though it doesn't own them? And to demonstrate what a business um, public domain footage actually is now. And sometimes the same public domain footage can be held by four or five different archives, um, and they're all busy monetizing it. Um, and finally, and I think I can maybe share this because I suspect not too many people will be listening to this podcast, but I don't know, what are your audience ratings like? <laughs> we get a few views. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. Okay. Are, but let's just say you are amongst friends. 
Okay. So, um, I mean, the, the concept of it basically is to legally buy the footage, put it into the film, uncut, and thereby make it publicly available. Its presence right. in the film is for release from the paywall, but then makes it pub fully usable because it's inherently public domain. Um, yeah. So my first step is going to be a short film that does this. And then if I can find a way for it also to be an interesting film, not just a, you know, a long string of footage, I'd like to make it a feature length, feature length film. Wow. Um, so the film, the film would be an archive in a mm -hmm. sense. I, I, it just sounds like a fascinating route to go down to, and, and it's it's been a long bit of frustration of mine when I speak to colleagues that are saying they want to get material from archives and then some of the things you see in their in their terms and conditions and the contracts and the, they're, they're, they, there's this kind of invented layer of rights that doesn't exist under copyright and oh well you'll have to pay this much for the reproduction rights it's like, well, what is the reproduction right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing that you've created in order to say I won't give it to you until you give me some money, mm. and mm. and it's 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 not something that's actually reflected in in the copyright law that is there deliberately to provide that balance between uh, the private interests and, and the public interest. Actually, I have a question for you, Chris. Just yeah. a little, uh, as as we're here, you know, let's not worry about the audience listening. But actually, uh, I just want to know if I if I were to license something that was in the public domain, would I still be subject to the terms and conditions of the license? Um, you mean if you were to license the rights to use your new film to other people? No, sorry. If I were to sorry to take foot to purchase footage, yes, under a license agreement put mm -hmm. it in my film and that footage were public domain, but the license agreement had certain conditions attached to it. Um, would I still be subject to those licensing conditions? Well, see what happens at that stage. And this is why many people are in a bind is that the, 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 uh, the license is a form of contract. And yeah. therefore you look at the terms of contract law. Um, and that is often how you, you know, organizations will rely on well it says it in the contract and you've agreed to it so um once again the clue is in the theme tune it's not legal advice um so yes there is some level of being bound by it yeah. but at the same time there is a broader question about the public domain that i think is a very good question to ask whether that question is answered um in a court of law um is is yeah. is yet another consideration yeah. but it, it's it's definitely um something that is i i would say worth challenging um uh so that's not that that's kind of a classic <laughs> it depends kind of on yeah. but, 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 but there definitely is there, there definitely is this this situation where contracts are legally binding yeah. if it's something that you agree to um so again uh something that's fine. i just have to read the contract and you know find a twist to the work that fulfills the letter of a contract yeah mm. i can do that mm. Mm. Uh, but the, the the question about then for applying, a, say, a Creative Commons license to that, that that's a whole other question that, yeah. that then brings in further, further. But there is, of course, the the public domain mark that is public uh, that the Creative Commons um, have have created, which means that you're, you're you're effectively saying this work is in the public domain, and yeah. even though you cannot vouch for the fact that it definitely is, and someone, but it's to the best of your knowledge, that's that's the work that you've done. So that would seem. The appropriate tool to use in that yeah. case yeah. but uh, that may yeah. be for a, a further conversation outside yeah. of the, yeah. yeah 
How That's what I did with Romare in Paris, actually. In the mm. end, I, I just did the put the public domain, Creative Commons public domain mark on it. Mm. And I'm not sure, you know, if, if push came to shove, I'm not sure whether that would stand. Um, but certainly the work that I put into it is public domain. I don't know how you would quantify that if the images are someone else's, but there's something mm. there of it that's mine that I've given away rights to. Uh, right. which maybe includes the images in, if you interpret it in certain ways. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I will I will I will avoid saying any more getting drawn into the more kind of esoteric and philosophical aspects of what is copyright, um, <laughs> a copyright work and what isn't. Um, it does sound so, a little bit like we're getting into nerdy facts or anecdotes about copyright. Though, it does Chris. a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> So yes, do you have do you have any nerdy face? So if imagine you are at a dinner party and yeah. you're talking to somebody um, about the work that you do and the topic of copyright comes up, what's your go-to nerdy copyright fact to wow and amaze people? I don't have. Well, I do. I have. A, I have one. It's not really a fact. Um, I would say before the way to engage people with copyright is is to engage their interest in copyright. And I found this very clearly. Everyone, yeah. everyone brushes with copyright somehow. So with my third year students, it's talking about piracy. That's the way in. Yeah. You know, I don't even have to prepare a class on piracy. They just, you know, they just keep on talking. Yeah. Um, with academics, it's about, you know, rights to images for books and articles and front cover mm. images, talking about what, whether they need to pay for that or not. Um, mm. or, or, you know, publishing fees, for example, um, you know, this kind mm. of having to pay for gold access now. Um, and so everyone, you know, everyone, there's a way in to talk about copyright with everyone. You just have to observe, see the vulnerability, and then go for it. And you can have a copyright conversation with anybody whatsoever. Um, I do have... Challenge you to that. <laughs> yeah. I do have one fact which I do uh, cherish more than any other, yeah. actually, though. Oh, and that is oh. that uh, a few years ago I was at the ICA and I was at an event focused on uh, copyright, uh, copyright for artists. And it was quite a crowded room. And the person who organized the event uh, introduced it by saying, OK, could anyone who's here who want to who, say, could whoever is here because they want to protect their, their work, please put your hand up. And about half the room put their hands up. And then he said, could anyone who is here who wants to use someone else's work, please put their hand up. And then the other half of the room put their hand up. <laughs> and actually later on reflection, I, I've got a feeling that they weren't, you know, in fact, if you know, if if everyone would actually were actually being honest, they would have mm. both they would have all put their hands up both times mm. for both I was questions. Going to say, both hands up, maybe. <laughs> and that's the crux yeah. of it. And nothing mm. else, nothing else, kind of co communicates the bind. You know, that people are in mm. around copyright more mm. than that that anecdote. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's a fantastic uh, story because th that's always the thing that you get this. Um, often, and this is what Jane and I talk about a lot, let's not get stuck in binary positions when we're talking about copyright. It's never that simple. Um, no. It's not right or wrong. It's not user versus creator. And no. and, and actually, part of the trouble is that um, it's internalised, that, that that conflict and that duality is within all of us as, yeah. as 
we want on one hand to see works being created we want them to be protected and i guess that's that's part of that creative process is is sort of dealing with those those different feelings of wanting to let go at the same time as as kind of being quite protective of of the work that you do mm. so i mean are you do you think that there is a a change in the way that creators are thinking about creative works from this 20th century idea of, of uh, uh, well, it's, it goes back to, to the Enlightenment period, doesn't it, when copyright was created along um, the lines of the romantic author. I mean, do you get a sense that in creative communities, there is a general feeling of, hey, we're all just feeding into a commons that we're all happy to do it? Or is that still quite a, a sort of niche marginal? area of creativity yeah i would like to say yes to that question but but everyone feels they are just feeding into a commons but i i don't think that's true Um, and i think i think there's a lot of um i think there's a lot of sort of in the artistic community in particular there's a lot of not quite understanding that the copyright isn't for them but falling back on it because there's nothing else Mm. Uh, and you know, I mean, people want to be attributed, but people also do want sometimes in certain circumstances to have control over their own work. And it's quite yeah. understandable. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's I feel like this internal conversation sometimes is just left unresolved. Like there's one example of a work. I won't mention what it is or who made it, but it was a work that was based on uh, images sourced from the Internet, um, freely available um, unlicensed, not paid for, um, fair, fair dealt or fair used images. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the final film, um, made up entirely of them, um, showed at festivals and disappeared. Um, the film, um, I wanted to show it in a class. I talked, I emailed the filmmaker, um, saying, you know, could, could I show it in the class, please? The filmmaker said, yeah, sure. Go to my education distribution company which charges 200 pounds for a single screening. <laughs> and it was like, oh no, we're here, are we? You know, yeah. seriously. Mm. Um, and you know, it's like the problem is not just the copyright, it's the structures that have been mm. built up around it. And even if you dismantled it, they would still exist. And the problem here was that the there was no in-between. Like either you make a, a documentary for Netflix for a lot of money and it gets put up on Netflix and it's within the commercial realm of copyright, then thousands and tens of thousands of people pirate it, but it still makes a load of money because it goes on Netflix. Or you're an artist filmmaker and nobody's interested in spending yeah paying for your work and so you try and sell it to institutions through an educational distributor for example or through an agent who will sell it to uh, collectors who aren't so common for artists film and video but they do exist and they pay fair money Um, and so by doing that you restrict access Um, it's like it's like public it's like hardback books being sold for a hundred pounds Except even worse, because, you know, my class of 12 people was going to basically be spending 15 pounds a head just to watch this one documentary. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's it's just so intractable. It's like there's no other there's no platform within which another option could play out. Mm -hmm. There's no you know, there's no mechanism for it in music. There's Spotify, you know, there's something there's like a, a gap of 
a centralized, you know, clearinghouse of content that can be used in different ways. You know, I mean, legalities aside, but it exists. Mm. There's no there's no such platform. There's old film, which is still based around geo blocking and restrict, you know, kind of cinema releases. Mm. And then there's, you know, there's kind of the art world, which is um, work just being put into galleries, sold to collectors and never again being seen. And then there's YouTube, which is just like the junk of the world up, up online forever and, you know, forever and ever. And it's rubbish. And there's, you know, there's no way in which I could have got that film, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, there was no mechanism for it to happen. Yeah. Um, and it's very sad because, you know, I think it's sort of, you know, it's like a lack of confidence in the artist that the distributor is saying the only place you can sell this is to rich American universities at 200 pounds or 150 pounds a pop because nobody else is going to pay for this. I think they would. I think if there were a way for people to pay a reasonable amount for artists, film and video, they might be willing to pay a bit less for it than the latest James Bond, but it would yeah. be enough to enable artists to have a living from it. I think this is a really, really interesting point. So this is something that we've, we've been seeing very, very clearly since the since the pandemic um, uh, and, and the shift to online teaching. Mm. So um, we in in UK law, we have um, an exception, which is Section 34 of the Copyright Designs and Patents Act that says if you're showing a film on the premises of an educational institution, there the copyright doesn't come into it. You don't need a license because it's not even a restricted act, according to the law. Um, but now we have, uh, you know, obviously putting people in a in a lecture um, theatre and, and showing them films is, is not possible. And however long it takes for this um, vaccine to be rolled out, it's probably going to be for, for a while now. Um, so so, yeah, this this practice of saying, well, here's an educational screening license that, that doesn't actually fit in with the way that educational institutions work, nor nor argument from a from a point of principle should they work should they be paying more money to show things to students so um yeah a, a couple of things i guess what's your what's your reflection on on teaching um in mm. the pandemic and how you've you've dealt with those questions about getting access to information and 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 the second one is i mean do you have an idea of how we might get a better way of doing things in the future uh, no, that's your job, Chris. You're the copyright officer in Ken, not me. Um, Can't do it alone. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'll, <laughs> I'll give you moral support. Uh, I mean, I don't have an answer to it. I mean, my only re personal response has been that even though the legality has changed, the, the underlying ethics of it hasn't changed. Um, yeah. I'm not showing it on site, but everything else is exactly the same. You know, yeah. I'm not and I'm, you know, I'm sending links only to students. Um, I'm taking material down at the end of the week. Um, mm -hmm. I'm doing all that I reasonably can to restrict access to a small group of people um, in a specific period of time. Um, yeah. I'm still showing everything that I would ordinarily show. Um, let's gloss over where, you know, where I've sourced some of it, because not all the DVDs that we wanted to have digitized have been digitized. So I've had to find alternate sources. Um, but, you know, the bottom ethical line is everything has to be showable in an educational setting. I mean, I can't I can't even understand an argument that would say you shouldn't be able to do that. 
you know this is education for heaven's sake yeah. uh, and i feel i'm going to continue doing that until somebody you know strictly tells me not to do it um and, and tells me why there is a liability involved and a risk to doing it um and, uh, and 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 those thoughts i think are echoed very strongly amongst the community jane and i have been talking to a, a number of people across the sector um, as part of the project we're doing and looking into to practices. Um, mm. I thought I'd just say um, uh, to acknowledge your contribution and input into our University of Kent copyright literacy strategy. So I think that was really useful and helpful in getting mm. a sort of institutional acknowledgement that, that these were issues that needed to be addressed, even if you know, that document wasn't saying we're going to do X, Y and Z, but saying we're going to have these sorts of conversations and, and we're going to uh, allow risk management to be part of those conversations there. So yeah, thank you very much for that. But yeah. uh, yes, absolutely yeah. happy to continue to <laughs> to do my job and try to resolve some of those issues. But it's, yeah. <laughs> and just to return it again to you know it's yeah. it's it's still you know it's like the artist loses every time you know mm. like this guy. Of course, I was never going to pay him his 200, his 150 pounds, you know, licensing fee. And the result of it was nobody got to see his film. You know, mm. that's the bottom yeah. line. You know, people who could have loved it and shared it and been influenced by it weren't. And it's just so it's heartbreaking, you know, but kind of artists allowing it to be done to them. It's like the logic, especially of the art world, is that you withdraw, withhold access in the hope of it gaining in value because nobody can see it. And so its kudos goes up and then mm. it gets talked about so much as a rarefied thing that a collector will buy it for a huge amount of money. Unfortunately, mm. in you know, 999 out of 1,000 cases, 9,999 out of 10,000 cases, it doesn't happen. And the only actual real outcome of that is that people don't get to see the work and the artists um, marginalize themselves unless they're very, very lucky and they've been seen by the right curator and everybody loses. Um, and so, you know, I don't know what the solution to that is as much as I don't know what the solution to the education conundrum is, but it just feels something structurally wrong. Um, and somehow copyright is tied up with it the sense of sole ownership ownership and absolute property rights and this kind of underlying psychology of treating creative work as though you own it you know when you say this is my son you know it's an ownership pronoun my but it doesn't mean you have absolute complete and total utter physical rights over everything that your son thinks and does in their life you know it's a relation it's not an owner it's not a form of ownership it's a an assertion of a relationship and when you create a work it's a relationship in a mm. certain sense which features you the work and the audience that it will have when it goes out into the world and it's mm. not just between you and it um but copyright makes artists think it is just between them and it um, mm. and to forget about the audience, the people for whom it's made. Um, it and I think copyright nice, is to blame in that respect. That's a nice, it's a nice analogy you've just made uh, about, you know, like your works are your children, that you've got to send them off out there into the world, haven't you? You're not, yeah. They're not things that you own, that you lock up. Yeah. But yeah. It's not. I don't think it's uh, a coincidence that when you're talking about moral rights, which is the the, the right to, to have a work as your kind of creative child, that it's termed the right of paternity. 
yeah. to be yeah. named as the author. So I think I think it does once again go back to quite an old fashioned idea of what, um, yeah, uh, being a parent means and and having control and uh, over people and not actually letting them be what they want to be. So yeah, mm-hmm. set all your works free. Let them go out. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes. Um. Richard, can you share any interesting topi- topical copyright news with us? We we often yeah. have an item about this, so uh, I don't know if there's... We need, we need to pause again. Happens. We need to pause again just for a moment. Copyright news, 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 There we go. Over to you. We're, we've come to the point in the uh, the podcast where we ask you to share an interesting topical news item richard is there is there any any anything you'd like to share with us with yeah, it's not very topical, yeah. but oh, first of all, I just want to go backwards. And sorry, I want to when when Chris said, um, "Give everything, give all your art away for free," um, I said yes. I actually meant no, um, because artists also do need to be paid. Um, I was mm. just, you know, it was peer pressure. I was just nodding along, but you know, mm. it's squaring the circle between. <laughs> The work does need to be out and the artist does need to be paid. And the way for that to happen in the best way possible just doesn't exist right Mm. now. And it needs to be invented. Um, I also wouldn't advocate on just letting your children roam the streets without any supervision. (laughs) (laughs) I've tried it. It didn't work. No, until they reach a certain age, at least. Yeah. Uh, So for copyright news, well, when was the last time you had this this well, it was look. it was January actually, so it's been a while. Yeah. Okay, so if the one, the big one, has to be um, the Internet Archives National Emergency Library. Mm. Um, that's mm. that's the big copyright news, I think. Yeah. So this was yeah. when the Internet Archive, which is a, a fantastic institution, um, released all the cop- digital copies of all the books that it had. Oh, I don't know exactly. Maybe you can say it better, Chris. Um, <laughs> They, so I've, I've forgotten the detail, but it's basically that they, I made, I've put some notes in, I made a big note saying, research what Internet Archive did, but I didn't do it. Um, so I could be talking out of my arm. We've been talking about it in our webinars as well to people news about it. So, yeah. Actually, yeah. what we could do is we can, we can pop a link in. There's been a news article actually this week where Internet Archive's lawyer um, has talked quite eloquently about what their position is and what they're doing and and what they they, they base it on the idea of controlled digital lending um, and we've also had um, from Kyle Courtney um, at, at Harvard University who is um, one of the uh, the people that uh, first uh, expressed the idea of controlled digital lending and how it would work so effectively if there's a copy on a bookshelf then you can loan a digital copy to someone and it, it's argued under fair use um yeah. so you know, we, we we can provide some links to those places but effectively yes it, it's it's about them making digital content available in a way that publishers are not happy about so what they yeah. did was for, I, I think i'm right that they every for every if they had a copy of a book they then made it for a limited time available not on a one-to-one basis, mm. but on a one-to-many mm. basis. Yeah. Um, so anyone yeah. could get a copy exactly of that well. book, which was the crux of the problem. And I think it's yeah. it's going to court very soon, like maybe next month or something. Um, it's So it's really pending. Um, mm. 
it's like, you know, again, it's like it's another example of where ethics and the law just don't don't meet. You know, who could ethically object to the Internet Archive making this gesture for all the people stuck in lockdown during April and May, um, a short duration gesture, which, um, you know, was going to end anyway at the end of June and which didn't allow them to download PDFs so they could copy. They were still digitally rights managed copies that people could download for a, you know, a period of three weeks or four weeks or whatever it was. It was a time limited gesture to give people something to do during lockdown and to keep their spirits up. But, you know, it, it broke their contracts. And what can mm. you do? Um, law's going to come after them. Yeah. 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 Thanks for pointing that one out. I think it's really interesting to see how it how it plays out and what its impact will be on the rest of the world. Because obviously yeah. it's, it's a US court case under US law. But what they did was broadened it out so others in other countries could access it. And there's an interesting thing as to how does that work in, in different jurisdictions. So. And I have one more newsy item, um, not so newsy, but it's also something which is um, it's it's percolating away. And that is the uh, uh, European Union Copyright Directive, um, mm -hmm. which came into play last year and gives countries two years to figure out how to implement it. So that's going to start being implemented sometime next year. And that's a, a whole big, scary thing, which basically um, institutionalizes content ID in, in, in my field, but basically means that co content sharing providers will be liable for unauthorized sharing. Um, mm. And they you have to get a license for everything you share or demonstrate that you've made the best effort to get a license um, for it to be legally able to be shared. Um, and that if you can't do that, there is a notice and stay down regime. So if and it's taken down, um, it's not uploadable again. Um, and so in effect that, you know, any, so in my own field, in, for example, you know, online video in YouTube, if some, if a, if a rights holder were to flag something um, mm. completely unlegitimately, once it got taken down, there'd be no way to get it back up, even though, even if it were a bogus claim. And so that inbuilds, that kind of defaults copyright filtering to everything um, you know, in effect, the copyright filtering mechanism that takes place on a particular platform, the algorithm, like the content ID, becomes de facto the law. Um, mm. And that seems quite, you know, terrifying a prospect. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yes, it is. It, it's, it's worrying because what you would clearly want to avoid is a whole genre and the whole area of practice, creative practice that you work in, effectively not getting um, a public audience get shut down yeah. if this were fully and there is some talk about you know I, I can't remember like something having like governments having to build in copyright exceptions into their legislation mm -hmm. but it's quite vague and still to be seen yeah so, so the issue is that um, across the EU different governments have to put that into their law um, and uh, there's a lot of work going on uh, within various stakeholders saying they want it to be like this and try to downplay the element that that sort of um, filter upload um, aspect of it. Um, and in the UK, of course, we are no longer part of the European Union, um, but undoubtedly affected by all of these changes. We'll, we'll follow. 
And yeah. I mean, that's the thing. The European Union is such a huge block. But once this happens there, there's, mm. there's going to be a kind of a, a filter. You know, it's just going to percolate everywhere. And, you know, as we know from the history of copyright, you know, all you need is one fairly important, you know, global block or country to increase, you know, the strength of copyright. And that becomes the default over a period of mm. 10 years or so. Um, yeah. So, yeah, quite anxious times, you know, worrying about whether the entire field of work that I work in may effectively mm. be closed down in a few years time. So I'm interested to know that as a as a someone who's got a very close interest in copyright, but um, is is not a, a, an IP lawyer. Where do you go to keep up to date with copyright news as a as a, a filmmaker and practitioner? Ooh, I would say uh, Creative Commons, mm. um, the Creative Commons community. Uh, yeah. I I follow the Electronic Frontier Foundation and what they do quite closely. Yeah. It's very American focused and it's, you know, it has a sort of a libertarian streak to it, which I, you know, I feel a little bit sometimes uncomfortable with, um, but they do a lot of very, very good work. Um, and I follow something called the IPCAT, um, which is some, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I mean, look, copyright isn't my primary research interest. It's just something I've accrued information about. So I've, you know, I find news about copyright whenever I'm looking for other things anyway. Um, it's one of those things. Once you once you are aware of something, then you see it everywhere. You know, once you think about buying a new car and you look at the bottom, you see it on the streets all the time. So yeah. I suppose that's the same. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. OK. Well, the last question is over to me. And um, we we tend to when we, we normally um, meet people in person, and we actually bring them along um, a little present. Um, we bring them um, some cake, which we have here um, for you. Um, but what, the question before before we offer you any cake, because there's no eating on screen, obviously, um, and we're all socially distant. But um, what type of cake, Richard? Are you are you a cake man? Have you got something? Absolutely, that, uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Love cake. What is? Oh well, you know what. There's as many answers to that question as there are kinds of cake, really. Um, depends on the day. I love Victoria sponge. Um, okay. My very, very, my favourite ever cake that I've eaten was a, uh, a chocolate and lime cake uh, from a recipe by Yotan Otolenghi, um, oh, yeah. which was just unbelievably good. Um, mm. But I'm not quite sure what the copyright status of that was. Actually, I was just <laughs> thinking about that as I was answering the question. What, what, you know, was 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 copyright I copyright infringing recipes. by, by yeah. making it? Um, there's quite a lot actually written about um, recipes and copyright. Yeah. So yeah. Um, uh, I, I, the answer is that the, the method itself is not protectable by copyright, but the written recipe and images of it are. So yeah, but the, the, there are still arguments about whether it should be and what what chefs yeah. do to protect their beautiful artistic creations and and the banning of ph photography in restaurants. Yeah. Um, but oh, that that sounds delicious. I might have to look oh, that one up. Yeah, might, yeah, you might have to send us a link to that one. Well, what we hope is that you will like um, what you've got here. So this is a virtual banana muffin for you. It's a Lovely. banana and date. So, I'll, I'll take yeah. that. I'll, I'll play along. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. you. It's one for you, Chris, as well. So here we are. There's, there's one. 
nice one in that with a pink uh, case for you. There you go, Chris. That's your one. So um, I've got a lovely smell here. I've actually got four of them in front of me. But um, thank you, you can Richard. Them all I mean, for all of us. No, thank you very much for joining us. So it's been um, a really wide-ranging and fascinating discussion about about your work and about the way it intersects with copyright and and obviously about film and um, and cake at the end as yeah. well. So all things I like. So pleasure. Okay, yeah, thank you very much, Richard. And let's have the theme tune. Copyright waffle, copyright waffle.